Welcome back, everyone, to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and I'll be along to kind of help facilitate some questions. This is an exciting episode. It is a questions and answer episode again. Uh, so keep those coming in. One of the questions that gets answered today is, what are some good lint practices for each Enneagram number? And Suzanne, of course, knocked it out of the park. Uh, our plug for this show is... For you to please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com beginning Monday, April 1st, and you will be able to find information, dates, and the application for our two cohorts in 2020, both the Enneagram cohort and the Contemplative Practices cohort. Uh, also, if you have a moment, please leave a review uh, on whatever app you're listening to this podcast. Let us know how we're doing, and if you like it, go ahead and give it the five stars or two thumbs up, or whatever the rating system may be. I've gotten a little long-winded. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and good luck on the journey. Hi, this is Suzanne, and I'm so grateful for all of your questions. It's my favorite way to teach, actually, and I wish I could answer all of them, but I won't be able to. I hope the answers that we're able to get to today and the questions that we explore will be helpful to all of you. Thank you to everyone who sends them in. We get them through uh, my mom's Instagram, Facebook, through SuzanneStabile.com, through direct emails, through LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com, through TheAnagramJourney.org, and just reiterating that we would love to answer all of them, and maybe throughout time they will all get answered. Uh, But we're going to start today with the most basic questions, just introduction to the Enneagram, because they still come through a lot. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Suzanne and Ian did do a podcast called The Road Back to You to accompany the book, kind of in promotion of it. Uh, the Enneagram Journey, we love it, uh, but it is for people that know their number and it's kind of, all right, doing life in your personality. It, would you know a better way to? I think that's the only way I know to say it. It all has to do with now that you know your number, then what are you going to do? And Actually, it takes so much intentional listening to know your number. You miss so much of all the other information. So it's kind of going back and saying, this is true about you, and this is too, and this is good, and this isn't, and this is how we can help. Yeah, and uh, people might be curious how guests are chosen or why this or why that. There's no rhyme or rhythm to that except for any guest that comes on the show is someone who we know has a good grip of their number and is doing work with it in their life. So sometimes that is three sevens interviewed in a row because right. that's what schedule and life has put in front of us. And, you know, yes, we do. People email in, they want a female five. It's like, we would love to put a female five on the podcast. And, and we, we will. As and soon we as will. we have just the right one. Right. And then their schedule matches up with our schedule. And, we go from and I'm kind of the drawback in all of that because I also teach and I'm also writing. So their scheduling is a thing for us. For us, With yeah. travel and all of that. And we record podcasts mostly at home. So um, we're, we're, we're trying. <laughs> all right. And we're going to try to answer these questions now. So starting here. Most basic. How do I determine my number? I think that's harder the older you get. 
so let's start with think about how you behave at home and think about how you were at 20. And in order to do that at 20 place, imagine yourself, like think about where you lived and what car you drove and what job you had and who your friends were, because that helps you get in touch with how you saw life then. After coming to a workshop or reading uh, The Road Back to You or listening to the Know Your Number MP3s, the best thing for you to do is start by marking out all the numbers that you know you're not. And that should easily be at least five numbers. And then that leaves you with four or fewer, hopefully. With those four, see if they have a connection to one another. Like, does one number have one of the other numbers on either side of it? Is it a number that you go to, would go to in stress or a number that you would go to in security? And then if you work from that reality, you'll understand why you're confused about it being a possibility of three or four numbers. And then think about motivation. It has everything to do with why you do what you do. So my husband Joe's a nine and I'm a two, and we do a lot of the same things for completely different reasons. I do them because I want people to love me and want me, and he does them so that he can avoid conflict and fragmentation in relationships. And it's the same behavior. So if you um, take out the ones that you know aren't you, then you see if there's a correlation between the numbers that you have left on the Enneagram. And then you start to observe yourself for two or three weeks. And I think you'll get there. You spoke about the motivation. That is the answer to two common questions and also uh, problems right now. I'll call it problems with anagram popularity it, we get so many questions about oh what test to take uh someone even said i'm busy right now can you send me the test <laughs> can you email me a test suzanne my mom suzanne's stance and ltms and it's the right one in my opinion don't do a test because tests measure your behavior not your motivation and then it also speaks to uh don't tell other people their number. Oh, man. And if someone has told you your number, Ignore don't it. do anything with that because only you know your motivation. At every workshop you do, that's an introductory workshop, you say, don't take a test. That, yes, there, you don't even, I don't want you to even say the specific one that you think is the best one of all right. the bad ones, but don't take a test. But with the email, it was, I'm, I'm very busy. Can you email me a test? The name of this podcast is The Anagram Journey. Anagram work is not done in an email. It's not done in a test. It is Even figuring out your number is you say, don't take that away from people by telling them their number, even, right. if, even if you are 100% right. Right. You rob them of the journey. And everybody needs the journey to figure out their number themselves. We have no idea the circumstances that happen in other people's lives. And honestly, for some things, there's just not a shortcut. There just isn't one. The Enneagram was oral tradition for thousands of years before anything was even published about it. And I, I think if you don't have the time to do anything but take a test, then you don't have time to learn the Enneagram Just don't right even take now. the test. Don't yeah. take the test. Just wait until you have some time. And then do this and do it in a way that you can use it for the rest of your life to be a healthier human being. And shortcuts don't get you there. 
What do you say? We're on the next question. Okay. What do you say to people that say that the anagram is evil or it's not Christian or it's just it's just bad that the you know when they are discouraging others about the evils of the anagram? I have some things to say, but I'm not sure I understand where that actually comes from. The anagram is not doctrine, it's not dogma, it's not reductive, and it doesn't eliminate but rather I think enhances faith belief and believing in something or someone that is bigger than you are. So my context is Christian. I, I'm a pastor's wife. I teach the Enneagram, uh, Enneagram from a Christian perspective, and I learned it from Father Richard Rohr, who wrote a book titled The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. I, I will just say two or three things. Um, I think a problem historically has been that the Enneagram becomes insider-outsider language. And people who don't know much about the Enneagram associate any insider-outsider language with things that they define as cultish. There are no secrets in the Enneagram. There's no wizard. There's no somebody talking from behind the curtain. I have called you the Enneagram wizard before. <laughs> oh, well, let's go with guru. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there... There are no, there is no hidden agenda, and my stance has always been, I hope the Enneagram is helpful for you, and if it isn't, it's okay. You, you can just gently let it go. The need to fight it or argue with it as if it's threatening, I only have one answer for, and we've talked about it quite a bit. When people um, in new audiences want to say, particularly in interviews, ask me, what's dangerous about the Enneagram? The one danger, as I see the Enneagram, is that you take it to be more than it is. It's one really great, helpful, spiritual wisdom that's been handed down for us to use in order to be more whole and healthier human beings. Beyond that, it has no agenda. The most dramatic uh, statement that I'll see on social media and other places is people saying that, you know, it. the only real answer is, I, I don't want to sound, sorry, my tone got a little stupid, but the You're only good. real answer is the love of Jesus. Right. It's like, like that's not what, what you're trying to do. There's, I'm not offering an answer. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I am doing that would, might be helpful to people who are, um, who see the world from that position. And that is that I believe self-awareness is essential for me to know who I am and who God is and who I am in relationship to God. And so the Enneagram has enhanced my way on my spiritual journey of really trying to be more Christ-like every day when I get up. I made this note for another question that we'll get to later. <clears throat> I don't know if it'll be in this episode or the next one, but my note was about motivations and because that seems to be what it comes back to is if, if your motivation, when you look at it for learning the Enneagram is not good and then, then it's not good for you. Right. Like it's just, uh, that sounds like the most obvious thing. I don't, I don't think that's obvious. I don't think that sounds obvious. I think that's brilliant because it, the reason you do anything 
is what determines who you are. It determines your character. It determines whether or not you're healthy or unhealthy. And honestly, if, if you're l- learning the Enneagram to try to make more money, to try to help other people, to try to control some circumstance, it won't help you in any of those ways. So you're wasting your time. The Enneagram originally was only taught by people who understood it to one person at a time, a student of theirs. And the thinking was, you can't do anything about anybody besides yourself, so you don't need to know about any of the other eight numbers. But in the mid-'70s, when they started publishing information about the Enneagram, of course, now we have all nine numbers available, so we have to accommodate that reality. And there's there's a lot of benefit to that also. Absolutely. Like I, I agree with you know that reason why they did it that way in the past. But it is really great to, I think, in closing the gap, the point for me is like that's straight out of the blue book for recovery. When you start your day, the motivations that you have for doing what you're going to do. That's right. Then if those are Christ-like or whatever your beliefs may be, and if the if Enneagram work lines up in that, then then okay. And like I said, and if you don't, if it doesn't, and you don't want to participate, then then that's okay too. Sure, no problem. No problem. Like, I'll give you an example. Another, another thing that they say, that some say these days is evil, is Buddhism and yoga. And um, I, I would love at 68 to be really good at yoga. And I'm really not very good at it. And so I'm not sure that's for me. Maybe Tai Chi is for me or some other thing. The reality is that not everything fits everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand in your own context that most Buddhist teaching is about a way to live, it's Buddhism isn't a religion. It's a way. Then, I, you know, I think life's hard enough. I kind of want all the tools I can get. Yeah. And I hold all of them loosely, except for my faith. All right, so the next question is also, uh, it's a little broad, but we get so many questions, and you've talked about this in different ways. We have so many questions that are concerning wings or wing-specific. Any question that you can ask about the Enneagram, people will ask that and add a wing twist to that. Okay, sometimes I feel like my answers are just a big disappointment. And I think this is going to be one of those times. So for everybody that I'm about to disappoint, I'm so sorry. But I have to say, based on my 25-year experience of working with the Enneagram, and I try not to kind of throw that around, but it matters that I've known it for so long. Wings are... Difficult to determine. They do have to do with behavior and never with motivation. They can be a sliver or the size of a whole pie. And they can be important and seldom are after you learn your number. So when I teach a Know Your Number workshop, 
I encourage people, once they've identified their number, to listen to the numbers on either side of theirs for three reasons. The first reason is if you have a big wing, then you will have some behavior from the number that is next to yours. And that could be confusing in you being able to determine your own number. The second reason is because currently there is so much talk about wings that I don't want to be dismissive and I don't want to be patronizing. And at the same time, I want to be really honest about whether or not I think they're important. Well, and it's the majority, it's the majority of the questions are what could be when that wing aspect is thrown in there, it makes the question unanswerable. Just so, so if we have a hundred, if I have a hundred questions that I'm filtering through and it's this question and so my seven wing in this, can you talk to that? And sure. that's, that's just and, not a reality. And so then that's why those questions don't come on here so that this answers a lot of questions that people are probably asking, why has this not been answered yet? Right, right. So your seven wing <laughs> or any other number has very little influence on how you do life. You just might have some seven behavior if using the number seven to represent all of them. In the tradition that I come through to Enneagram Wisdom, we believe that you have one wing for the first half of life and you add the other wing in the second half of life. And honestly, the greatest gift the wings offer, in my belief, is that when you finally have both of them in the second half of life, you're just a little more balanced. You're a little more adaptive, and you're a little more comfortable with behavior that's not straight in line with your number when it's best for the good of everybody. There are a couple of places where I believe that wings are really important for us to understand. And they have to do with numbers that are so very different. So you and I haven't had this conversation, but I'm going to have it with you now. Um, I wrote in my notes that I just came across maybe, I don't know, a couple of months ago when I was doing some other work. I came across a note that said, Joel says, how could it be possible to be a seven with a six wing? And you said that a very long time ago. Crazy long time ago. Right. And I, I was going to, do you want me to jump in here? I do. So I remember saying that. And that was before I did any Enneagram work. It, that, that was happening around the times of bringing girlfriends to my mom's Enneagram workshop because they wanted to do it. Yeah. And just having the worst day ever. <laughs> <laughs> and we... So that was my opinion on that. And so I always thought I had an eight wing. It made sense to me. We all knew I was a seven. Everything was seven. And then recently, so for the past, we'll say two years, yeah. I've actually been trying to work on my health, all of my relationships, and, and be better at life. And through that and through getting to work with LTM, it hit me one day that I did have, for this whole time, a six wing, and I remember asking you, I was like, is it possible to have a counterphobic six wing? Right. And you said yes. And then we laid out all the choices or all the big choices that I've made throughout my last 20 years and how being a seven and my motivation was the core. 
but how having that counterphobic six wing, that behavior supported my decisions yes. and everything lined up. And so all that gave though was just some understanding, like you said, to behavior. It has changed nothing moving forward. Right. What it explained to us about you was that you were more afraid than we thought and that your decisions were more motivated by fear than we taught, thought. And that's because five, six, and seven are all in the fear triad. And I, I don't think it would have changed a thing if you had known that. It does help looking back. So Kierkegaard says, we live our lives forward, but we understand them looking back. And I think... That applies uh, perfectly, right? Here. Yeah, it does apply perfectly. But you wouldn't have lived it any different if you had had that piece of information. Right. And I think the only thing that would have, would have been different would have been how I acted out my fears. Yeah, I think maybe. So then had it been an eight wing, the same fears were there. They just would have been acted out differently. Yep. Agreed. And probably more aggressively, which would have not been to your benefit. The... The places where I think this is important are, I think a nine with an eight wing is a tricky place. And if you haven't listened to the Enneagram Journey podcast with Joel and me and my daughter, Jenny, uh, do that because she talks about that and does a great job. But a nine with an eight wing is problematic because those two numbers are so different from one another and because eights, nines, and ones in that triad are all concerned with social justice. And so nines with a big eight wing do things in the name of justice that they regret because they often cause conflict. The other significant place is a four, is a three with a big four wing. And that's because um, those numbers are so different and it's difficult for a three as a number that's both feeling dominant and feeling repressed, who takes in information with feelings but then doesn't use feelings to make decisions about what they're going to do. It's very difficult for that way of seeing to be covered or to be side by side with enormous feelings that require a lot to be managed. And it's just tricky. And so all of this talk, and again, I don't want to be patronizing, and I don't want to negate anybody else's work. All of this talk about people introducing themselves, and they do it to me a lot now, with I'm a two-wing one, I'm a, that language doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't tell me anything about you for you to tell me what wing you have. Nothing. And I... I will take a shot at some test. If you test, if you take a test and it comes back, like th these are the things that come through. And this test said that I'm uh, equal nine, six, four, and eight. What a crap test that was. There's just I mean, no way. You, just, you there, just lost that time out of your life and you're never getting it back. There is no way that that could be accurate because those numbers are too different from one another. Yeah. There's just no way. And, and it, it, it takes, I don't know, maybe three years if you're really doing some work and self-observing to understand yourself just in your core number. You don't need to add anything to that. There's no work to be done around your wing. All right, so this is a specific example of a broader question, but Heather Young emailed and she said that she's a seven 
and she was watching a, a, a DVD teaching by Richard Rohr where he said that sevens don't like to read. And she's talking about how she loves to read. And, but, you know, it's, it, it's Richard Rohr and sevens don't like to read. There are, there are some things that you say when you teach that people you say uh, nines really love the outdoors. And there's a nine out there that's like, I, I hate the outdoors. Right. And I'm a nine. And uh, I've heard at other workshops people come up and say that this teacher said this about this number. Can you talk to that, uh, how one characteristic from one teacher doesn't make you or not make you that number? Just yeah, kind of sure. sure. go with that. My goal over the years in tweaking my Know Your Number workshop notes has been that what I say, two-thirds of that will be true for the people in the room who are that number. And it won't be the same two-thirds for every person. I've worked really hard to eliminate things that people say, that just doesn't fit me at all. And to add things that I hear a lot from people that I don't have in the notes. So sometimes, unfortunately, I think I forget to say, now all of this isn't going to apply to you. And when it's a deal breaker, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. So like we have a deal breaker in ones, right? If you don't hear that constant critical voice, then if everything else I say about ones fits you and you don't have the critical voice, then you're not a one on the Enneagram. But most numbers don't have a deal breaker. And so you have to go with an overall teaching and an overall way of putting yourself in the context of the teaching, which I don't want to beat a dead horse, but that's the reason I don't like tests. There's no context for the question that you're asked. It's just a question. And when I tell stories, people either see themselves in the story or they aren't able to. There's a lot, people love this. There's a lot of context in your stories. My stories are much shorter, <laughs> not as much context. Yeah, yeah. There, are, there is a lot of my Know Your Number notes and stories, but they work. And the goal is not for me to entertain myself while I'm teaching. The goal is for me to teach information that helps people get their number. And I am just not going to make big changes because our percentage of people who walk away knowing their number is so high. Yeah. Can you, this question came in from Sarah. Uh, what does pathology mean? She heard you teaching. What does pathology mean regarding the Enneagram? Mental illness. It, essentially, I am not going to talk about things that are beyond my scope. So if we look at all the movement in the Enneagram, then we have uh, healthy, average, unhealthy, excess in your number, and then pathology. And when I'm working with therapists who know mental illness and for whom that is their field of study and I can't get anybody in trouble, I'm happy to teach the Enneagram. But to teach it out of the context of only therapists, including what I know about the Enneagram and pathology, would be irresponsible, so I don't do it. And I know this is true for your Enneagram Know Your Number workshop, that you teach to average to unhealthy, because that's just where we are most of the time. Well, that's how we know ourselves. And, yes, and how we know ourselves. I think people sometimes forget that when they are at a workshop uh, 
you know, if someone's in a great place in their life sure. and they're like, man, this, I'm not doing life like this. Good. But people need to remember that mm-hmm. at workshops, that the teaching is to average space, not to healthy or the other end of it. And, and I would say that I try to aim for healthy, for average with uh, some of the bottom of healthy and some of the top of unhealthy. Because yeah. that's the normal range for you and me. And this is the water we swim in. I, if I have five really healthy responses to life in a two or three day period, I think I'm doing pretty great. Because, you know, the pace of our lives really means that we're in average space most of the time, behaving just like an average one or two or three or five or seven. It's interesting, you know, um, I did recovery work as a codependent literally for 365 days. I keep try to keep up with it, but I was really committed for those days. And one of the things that I used to do is I'd get real proud of myself if I made the right choice or if I did something great. And my sponsor would say, in recovery, there are no gold stars and you don't get to beat yourself with a stick. And in Enneagram work, if you give yourself a gold star, you're in average space. If you do something great and then all of a sudden you think you're great, then you're back in average space. All right, we had a, a stretch, and I think it's because there was a promotion somewhere or you're on a new podcast. But this question came in several times. Uh, what? So the direct question is, what should I read first, The Road Back to You or The Path Between Us? The answer to that real quick is The Road Back to You if you're, doing, no, you're, not, if you're new to Enneagram work. But for you on the show today, will you expand that if someone is coming in and they – are about to go to a workshop and let's say they figure out their number not to give someone a an agenda or what's that called for a, a syllabus uh-huh. for the next mm-hmm. three years mm-hmm. or however amount of time but can you what is all right i know my number kind of what what should i do next and it'll be different for everyone because it's your own journey like we said but just an idea of some steps and next thing to do next thing to look for Sure. Um, If you know nothing, the road back to you. The first question that comes after you know your number is, uh, well, I want to know about how to use this in my relationships because relationships are so important to everybody. So the path between us is next. I would say that triads has a lot of value. It should come early on because it's determined by your first response to taking in stimulus from the environment. So you either respond with what do I think, what do I feel, or what am I going to do, and that's all triad work, and I think that's next. After that, I think stress and security is super important because there's also a lot of what I would call inadequate teaching around um, stress and security and we need to know and be able to identify how we behave differently when things are lined up real well and when there's chaos in our lives. Stances is where I think the magic happens. And I have often said 
I think Hurley and Dobson are the unsung heroes of the Enneagram because of their work on stances. I learned basic information from them and have spent lots of time trying to expand on that because when people say, okay, well, I know these things, but now what? What is you spend the rest of your life trying to bring up your repressed center? And that's what stance work is all about. After that, and, and really after kind of being able to hold some of that, I think it's time to do subtype work or instinctual variant work. And I think subtypes are really important, particularly in relationships. And um, along the lines of when you begin to do subtype work, and stance work, I would suggest that you also do some care and transformation work of how am I going to do life differently in order to make the necessary changes in my life for me to be happier and more whole, which I've kind of come to understand through being able to see myself in the light of Enneagram wisdom. Thank you. And our final question for this episode uh, is going to be an audio question uh, sent in from Ryan. I'm really interested in misidentifying with either your stress or security number, and especially how long can you live in one of those two numbers as opposed to uh, kind of your core personality type. So for example, I'm a nine. Could I be in such a prolonged sense of stress that I look like a six for a really long period of my life? Or how does that work um, in terms of dipping in and out of your stress and security numbers? Thank you, Ryan. That's such a good question. I would say that we need to talk first about motivation because you don't become your stress number and you don't become your security number. You just use from your core space or your core number, you use behavior from those two places to enhance making your way in the world. I would think it would be fairly unlikely that anyone uh, would behave out of their security space enough time for it to be um, misleading in terms of what number you are. But I can surely see how it's difficult sometimes for people to understand what is their core number and what is their stress number. So let's start with this. If as a nine, you are living out of six a lot of the time, then that means that you are uh, actually helped by going there in stress because you're not quite so laid back and you're aware that there are some things you need to be concerned about and some things that aren't going to fix themselves and some things that you need to worry about. And that's where the number that you go to in stress is good for you, and that's where it helps you take care of yourself. But if you end up in a space where you're in six for a long time, that won't hold. And you'll be probably more in average six behavior where you're worried about things that probably aren't going to happen and you're experiencing too much anxiety. I don't believe that you would be acting out of a stress number 
for longer than several months. And the reason for that is there would be a break in motivation. So as a nine, what you want is to be able to assert yourself and to believe that your presence matters. And as a six, what the motivation would be would be to feel safe. So I think if you worked with just that, just the question of, am I doing all this to feel safe? Or am I doing this because I want to feel like my presence matters? That'll get you a long way down the line of knowing which number is your stress number and which number is your core number. Man, what a great answer. Thanks. (laughs) I had to use both hands for that answer and a lot of talking. (laughs) So I'm glad you liked it. And I haven't, when, I don't know if I've heard you talk about looking at the motivation in that space of stress. Do you know if you do you know if you have? I don't know if I have talked about that, but that you know, was just, that sounded so eye opening for. Yeah. yeah, I know. All right, so if we did it as a seven, because while you were talking and when I was listening to the question, I immediately, of course, looked at myself. Sure. One, I'm sorry. A, I couldn't stay in one space if I wanted to. Right. As a seven, I even and sometimes I do want to, and I just can't. Yes, we talk about how you can bring back some of that behavior and incorporate it into your everyday life and it makes life that much better. Right. But I couldn't say that if I wanted to. And then the other part though is that when I am in one space of when I am in that stress number, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel right to me. Like I don't feel like myself. Right. Is that true for every number? Yes. Like even no matter how long you're in that space, I just, whether it's for five minutes or a few days, it's not, I know that I'm not Joel. I think that is true for every number. And I I would also say, I think people who are really struggling to figure out whether or not they're their number or a number that they go to in stress are basing that on feedback from outside of themselves. I think other people are saying, oh, that's not how I see you. I see you this way. It's because you're stressing me the hell out, Susan. <laughs> you're bugging me. <laughs> uh, all right, we do have, I know I said that was the last question. But we're going to get this podcast up here pretty quick. Okay. So bonus question, I think it's a great one. All right. I just wonder what I get for answering a bonus question. Do I, I, I get think, a bonus prize? I think so. I think okay. the uh, the how much we need and love Suzanne's to be able to come in. Oh, come rolling in. It, All right. It's the two bonus. All right. Lint practices and the Enneagram. Can you kind of suggest something for each number? Sure. And that comes from Caitlin on Instagram. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, I never want to look at the questions ahead of time. So I'm going to do what Joel calls a riff sometimes, and sometimes he says I'm just talking. So we'll see how this works. Ones, uh, first of all, you should never give up so much that you spend more time in silence. You don't need that. It uh, encourages your critic it will end up making you feel terrible about yourself. And um, the whole idea of giving up something during Lent is to make us more mindful of connecting with God and with the whole of life and to live from a place where there's not so much, where we're not satisfying every 
need that we have or every desire. So it wouldn't help you to do a silent practice. I would suggest that you do um, some kind of practice that will help you grow, which might mean that you read somebody uh, just a devotional every day or a little piece from somebody every day that really stretches your thinking. You know, giving up something is one thing, but if you give up time watching TV to take on uh, having a daily read, that's a helpful thing. I would actually encourage anybody to add daily during Lent the book Consolations by David White. There's enough challenge on each page to carry you through those six weeks, and you'll be better for having done it. Twos, whatever practice you choose, you should do it alone. You have to figure out who you are when you're all by yourself and when you're not with somebody else. So you should choose silence or solitude or some kind of contemplative practice. Threes, you uh, would do well in your journey to choose something that you don't think you'll be very good at. Being more successful and more proficient at something won't help you. So if you can find a practice that doesn't have a scale of success and failure, that would be really good for you. Fours, you need a Lenten practice that insists that you be focused outward instead of inward on your own thoughts and your own feelings. Fives, it would be really good for you to do any Lenten practice that involves participation as opposed to observation. So um, you might want during Lent every other day to invite somebody you work with to have coffee with you. Just 15 or 20 minutes where you are risking the vulnerability of getting to know somebody else so that you come to a greater understanding of how God sees you as a social valuable being with lots to share. Sixes. I would encourage you to do something that's on the edge for you. Something that you've kind of wanted to try, but you're not sure you'll be able to follow through with or that you'll be really good at. And something that uses thinking, feeling, and doing. So while we often uh, suggest prayer beads for ones on the Enneagram, I would suggest prayer beads for sixes on the Enneagram for a Lenten practice. Sevens, it would be really good for you to read someone who has measured amount of life in action and contemplation. That would be Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, James Finley. Um, Thomas Merton is the man. He he is really something, I think. You know, it, it's so interesting because we always say that sevens and fours, you can't tell them apart as children. And I think that means you can't tell them apart in the purest part of their being. And Merton was a four who had balance between action and contemplation. I think that he would be really good to read. And there are, you can get books with daily readings from these folks. Um, another good person to read for sevens during Lent who has that balance but who hasn't lived a monastic life is Barbara Brown Taylor, Learning to Walk in the Dark. Um, eights. It would be really important for you to do a Lenten practice that means you stop. Just stop. 
and do something that involves only you and that's quiet. You might try Praying in Color by Sybil Macbeth. My daughter, Joey, who's an eight, tells me that that's a very effective prayer method for her, and I've heard that from other eights, too. And you do that all alone by yourself, but you have something to do. So check that out. And if you check out her website, she'll have a Lenten calendar there or a a basic template for you to do that with. And nines, you need to do a non-contemplative Lenten practice that has to do with asserting yourself or with looking for places where you're mindful that you matter to other people and showing up for that. So once a day, you either look for a place where you're going to assert yourself, even though it's tricky, or once a day, you're going to figure out a place where you can own and recognize that your presence matters. Awesome. Thank you so much for the question, Caitlin, and for the answer. Mom. Joel, I don't know if I ever thank you for gathering all these questions so that we get to do this. Um, Again, I'm so grateful for everybody who sends them to us, and I hope over time we'll get to answer everybody's because these are things that I don't in a normal workshop get to teach to. Since I have to say everything nine times, I don't have much time to get to answer some of the questions that are very thoughtful and very helpful across the numbers. So I feel like we kind of team taught you and me and everybody who sent us a question today. So thanks again. Yeah. And I also always feel like people really want the guests, you know, but I'd like to hear from people if the Q&A, if getting questions answered this way, if that's equally popular, I guess is the best way to put that. Yeah. I hope it will be. Me too.